0: Welcome to The Latest on the Law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more.
1: Thank you so much for joining. My name is Grace Ressler. I'm a partner at Myrick O'Connell, and I practice family law. And my name is
0: Alana Hawley. I am an attorney at Tomasino Legal Group, and I also practice family law.
1: And we're here today to present the Divorce Fundamentals Client Interview. Um, Thank you again for joining. So, um, you know, I think we have all been in situations where we've been interviewing a client and you think to yourself, what is the point of what I'm doing right now? And today we're gonna talk about the goals of interviewing clients, um, both from our perspective as an attorney and possibly from the other side, from the goal of the client or the potential client when they're interviewing us. Um, But I think that we'd agree that for the attorney, the two most important roles of the initial client interview is really to gather as much information as possible Um, and to start issue spotting, just like you would in law school, when all of a sudden you're hearing a kitchen sink type situation. In the back of your mind, you're thinking, okay, this is going to be an issue. This is going to be an issue. We'll come back to that. So I'd say those are probably the two main uh, pieces that you should be always thinking about when you're first interviewing clients. Alana, what about for the client? What do you think is important for them uh, in the interview?
0: So for the client, I think there are two things that are super important. The first is being the roadmap of divorce. A lot of the times when the client's calling the attorneys, it's the, their first introduction to the legal system. It's also their first inter- introduction to what it looks like when they're getting divorced. And all they've seen is what's on TV. I know Suits, for example, big on Netflix right now. Um, And that could be the only exposure they have. So understanding what could happen in the divorce process and understanding their options, it's important that that gets articulated. The other thing to provide the client with is an understanding of the fee structure. So how does your office operate? How do you operate as their attorney? Who will they be working with and what is that going to cost them? So we'll be discussing, um, both how we go through getting this information for the attorney and also making sure that we inform the client of the things that matter most to them. Um, And so pretty much, you know, this day and age, your first introduction to the client can happen a few different ways. But basically, you're on the phone with them or you have a Zoom with them. And what is the most important information that you need to get from them? You know, what I like to do is I want to know most importantly what their names are, what their name is, what their opposing party's name is, where they're living, what they're doing for work and their income, any children they have and how old they are, and really just have the client get a lay of give you a lay of the land. Where are they in this process? What are they calling you for today? And, you know, one of the things I find when I call and when I have these meetings is some people come in super prepared. They have a lot of questions. They're ready just to kind of sit there and listen and have you guide them. Um, Other times they are just bubbling at the surface and want to tell you everything under the sun. And so I really say I start off my conversations with, okay, what works best for you? Do you want me to help guide you? And I can ask you questions so I can figure out what it is I need to know so I can uh, tell you what to expect? Or is it better for you just to kind of tell me your story? And it's probably 50-50. I don't know about you, Grace, but it's probably about 50-50, you know, what works for them. And so it's just really important while they're talking to always be listening and issue spotting. Yeah, and, and I would it,
1: I would just interrupt really quick. I think the other thing that I've seen that um have gotten more questions, more people calling about general questions and general rights, or I'm thinking about this. Can you give me the lay of the land? Which is a different um, it's kind of a I don't want to say it's a different animal, but certainly in that person's mindset, you have to remember maybe they don't know what they want yet. And so you're going to start kind of talking in generalities about things um, versus if they're coming to you, they've already made up their mind. They want to proceed with a divorce or they've already been served, in which case they don't have an option to not. And I think sometimes you just have to keep all of that in mind when you're talking and to keep those ears open um, because... It might be a little bit of a different conversation with the client, depending upon which way they're coming in from and what what their background is.
0: And I think that's such a good point. And I agree with you. And also know that, again, since this is the first time that they're maybe engaging with the legal system, they are informa- trying to gather this information. So you may have a great call and then you hear nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not unlikely. Six months go by, nine months go by, a year goes by. And they call you and say, hi, do you remember me? Um, You know, I know we talked about getting divorced. I'm ready to do it now. Um, And so, you know, always keep that in mind. And also, too, um, before I really get into things somebody might not be ready to get divorced or may not be ready to hire you or may find somebody else who they find to be a better fit but that doesn't stop them from telling their friends that or people they know that i did talk to this great lawyer you know you should talk to them and so you should always treat even if you don't think that you're the right fit or someone's going to hire you you should always treat that conversation um with the Professionalism that you would anyone else because you never know where you're going to get your referrals from. That's a good point. That's a really Uh, good point. So, in terms of when the client's starting to tell your story, one of the big things to issue spot is if they have children. And if they have kids, finding out what's going on in terms of the parenting of the children are the parties still living in the same house are they living in separate residences have they established some kind of parenting plan um do they have an idea or a goal of a parenting plan that they want to reach you know there i believe there are other divorce fundamental series and i encourage everybody to take those cuz they're really fantastic that will talk about parenting in more detail but you know Starting out, some people, they don't know the difference between legal and physical custody, and they just say, I want all of the custody. And so it's important to really explain to them, well, what is custody? What is physical custody? What is legal custody? What does a parenting plan look like? And sometimes you learn through what they're explaining to you that really they're looking for some kind of joint parenting plan or a plan that's really every other weekend and a couple days during the week. Um, And so you just have an idea of what they want from that regard. Um, Child support, you know, are they the primary wage earner? Are the child children primarily living with them? Who is going to have to pay support? And what is that likely going to look like? You know, we can always run. I try not to touch child support guidelines while I'm talking to them, just because as you sit down and you gain more information about their finances, you can really guide them because I find some people get really stuck on the number, but you can at least give them the information about what constitutes a child support order and what are some factors um, that go into that calculation. The other things you're listening for are what extracurricular activities do the children do? Are those extracurricular activities disputed? Um, You know, do you think that they will be disputed going forward and who's paying for them? Um, Same thing with medical expenses. You know, how has treating the children from a medical, dental, um, psychological perspective been going during the marriage? Have there been issues? Who usually pays for that? Who has the health insurance? And then if the children are older, where are they in terms of going to college? Are they in their junior or senior year of college and needing to figure out what com- where they're going and how that's being paid for? I mean, high school. <laughs> yeah, high school. Oh, sorry, high
1: school. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: but how are they paying for college? But also when you're finding out what your client thinks about these things, you can say and you can ask, Did you have a conversation with your spouse about this? What do you expect your spouse is going to feel about it? And you can, you know, give them information about what the court usually does. Um, By way of example, you know, if somebody calls you and they say that they have, they're currently living in separate houses, they have two kids, one's about 16 years old, the other one's 11, um, you know, they have college coming up. And they, the other child is super involved in extracurricular activities and the other parent is traveling all the time, you know, but the other parent is saying they want a 50-50 parenting schedule. And the person who you're talking to is saying, you know, I don't think that he's going to be he or she's going to be able to have um, a 50-50 schedule because I've been picking up the slack and caring for the kids you know, some of the issues you're hearing, you know, that you're going to have an issue with the parent, you may have an issue with the parenting plan, you may now need to figure out if this case goes forward, well, what is the other party's work schedule? What does that actually look like? How often are they traveling? Um, you know, with child support, does how often is the one parent covering for the other? In terms of parenting, is an upward deviation of child support appropriate? Um, with which one child going to college like we talked about where are they going to go to school how much is it going to cost what are the parties' positions relative to how that payment should be
1: i was going to add to um one thing i don't know if you've experienced this is um i think a lot of people don't know that extracurriculars are not included in child support that comes up very frequently Um, And I I have a lot of clients ask, um, or a lot of, in in initial client interviews, a lot of people ask, you know, what is covered by child support? And, well, my spouse says they're going to pay me support and that's it, you know? And I think that you can kind of make them feel a little bit better about if they're worried about extracurricular expenses and to say it is separate and apart from child support. Same from the uninsured medical expenses that you can teach your, you know, potential client These are all the things that are not included in a child support calculation um, that they should know. And, you know, sometimes they might say, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's good to know, you know, Um, just to give them a little bit more of an expectation going forward. Um, And I would say also that, you know, I've had more and more clients, um, be concerned about paying both a child support order and a college contribution. And I think that in an initial, you know, you never want to give a potential client, um, you know, false hope that, that, you know, suddenly they're not going to be paying for college or they're not going to pay child support and college or whatever. But I think that it's healthy to sometimes even at the initial meeting, I do print out um, if I know that they have children in advance, I do print out the child support guidelines um, and I give them a copy to go so that they can take it and read it. Um, And then if they do become your client, certainly you can spend some time on it. But to give them a sense of this is what a judge would be looking at. Here's your reading. Here's your reading homework for the evening as well. But I think it's important to, um, you know, not represent in a first meeting what can happen you know what what will happen to them but certainly that it's just you know all of they're all the same dollars and it's a question about where they go mm-hmm. yeah and so on the feedback of kind of pigging backing up
0: pigging back off of kind of dollars you're also going to be wanting to find out like we talked about what are the incomes of the parties so are they W-2 employees do they own their own business Um, do they, are they a 1099? You know, what is their work history look like? How have they, how do they earn their money? Um, and really has there been any change in their income that they, they can think of that could be upcoming, you know, have they, are they going to be getting demoted at work? Are they going to be promoted at work? Um, do they see that, in their industry there's been mass layoffs i mean that's something that's been happening right now to a lot of my clients unfortunately in their companies there's they're going through layoff rounds um is that something that could happen and if it does you know what are they thinking of doing are they looking for new jobs um you know those are all things to talk about and if they're business owners what kind of business is it is it seasonal or is it a business that is year round and you know, they earn and it's well-established and they earn what they earn from it.
1: Lana, I have a question for you. Do you ever get the potential client that comes in and says, well, I'm just going to quit my job. And what do you say to that person when they walk into your office? I say
0: where I understand your frustration and where you're coming from, you cannot quit your job because if you quit your job, and the court, it's just shown to the court that yesterday you woke up and you decided you're going to quit your job. It is more likely than not that the court is going to attribute income to you. And that means that you are going to still be seen as having the same amount of income that you had prior to quitting your job, but no job in which to earn the money. So that is a regular conversation. Um <laughs> That happens far more than I like, even after the case gets started. Um, But, you know, it's setting expectations and it's understanding to where the client's coming from, because how frustrating Mm -hmm. to have to pay somebody support if you feel they're not doing everything in their power or potential to earn money. Um, And it's your hard earned money. So understanding where they're coming from, but at the same time, giving them that reality check of that's very nice. You'd like to quit your job. You don't get that. You should not do that. And uh, don't I I do not advise that. There you go. Um, uh,
1: The another issue spotting um, thing that you want to be looking for um, when you talk to these people is to see exactly what kind of assets we're dealing with, because obviously divorce or modification could be either. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of this has to do with not only the children, but also the money and where is, where are these assets? What are their values? How are we going to be dividing the marital estate? Um, so specifically looking at and trying to understand what real estate they have, what investments they have, if they've got, you know, brokerage accounts, if they've got cash accounts, um, retirement accounts that they have, you know, a lot of couples, I don't know about you, Alana, I see, I run the gamut in terms of what people know or don't know about their finances. Um, some people know every single account that every single person has in their relationship. Other people walk in the door and they say, my husband and I have always kept separate finances. I have no idea what he has, and I only have $10,000 in retirement, and that's it. So um, be prepared to to talk about exactly what's on the table there. Also, just other things to kind of note, you know, um, vehicles that people drive, are they leased? Are they owned? Um, are they loans? Life insurance policies. This is always um, a favorite for me. Life insurance policies, if they're whole life, they have a cash value, which is a an asset uh, in the marital estate. So if they know that there's a whole life insurance policy, you want to make sure that they disclose that. Um, other things that... Uh, You might want to inquire about any what I call toys, um, boats, RVs, kayaks, um, ski do, you know, anything that has value um, like that, that you're going to want to know about that. Um, And then memberships, you know, sometimes, um, you know, if you have a membership to a country club, there might be a bond associated with that. There's a cash value to it. If you have, um, you know, ownership, ownership to another membership or, uh, you know, Country clubs, um, you know, Bruins season ticket holders, that kind of thing. You'll want to know about those things. So always look for that. Um, Really quickly, with respect to the properties, um, it's always interesting to see and to inquire about how certain things are held. Um, So things might be held jointly by title, but you should always ask who's on the actual mortgage um, because you might have to refinance if somebody uh, wants to keep the the former marital home, for example, but in a lot of circumstances, maybe only one party is on the mortgage and that party won't have to refinance the mortgage if they don't have to remove another person from the debt. So it's always a good thing to ask and kind of issue spot for that. Um, and so also- Oh, sorry. What was that? Sorry, Grace.
0: Um, But also, too, when it comes to the properties, one thing to find out, too, like right now, the mortgage and being able to refinance is a really big issue we're all having because of the high interest rates. But also, what contributions were made to these assets? So Mm -hmm. specifically with properties, I don't know about you, Grace, but in my practice, I see a lot of times the parties may have had help buying their home, whether that came from a family member or was a gift, um, or perhaps, you know, one party prior to the marriage entered the marriage, having that property, and knowing those, those are things to be issue spotting and being aware of.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I know we haven't, we haven't discussed it. But I think the other thing in terms of issue spotting, certainly always ask if the couple had a prenup. Mm -hmm. um, Because that's going to absolutely affect Um, all of the asset division and probably any alimony claims and support claims that are out there. So you always want to ask, is there a prenup first? Because your conversation will be completely different if there's a prenup and you'll want to get your hands on that as soon as possible. Um, So with respect to that was all the kind of the positive things on the on the red side or on the the black side of the ledger. On the red side of the ledger, though, you also want to kind of start thinking about what are these people's debts? um is there are there student loans when were the student loans incurred right um that i get that one a lot it's well we got married and then three years in i put my spouse through med school because that's what he wanted right um you know are those loans marital debt are they the loans that are going to be solely solely one person's after the divorce um Again, with the real estate, you want to look at mortgages, see who's on things, how much of the property is in debt. Are there home equity lines on top of the first mortgages? That's always a big one. A lot of the cases that I see, one of the spouses may have taken out home equity lines without the other spouse knowing, or they have said, um, yeah, we took out a home equity loan. I thought it was only 40 but then they start seeing the documents are like 70,000. So you want to understand exactly what else is out there. Um, And then we talked a little bit about car loans. Are there loans in people's names? That's a big deal for insurance purposes because it's really, really hard to transfer title if there's a loan in someone else's name, but you know, the other person drives it, it's got the car seats in it, you know, that whole thing. So you you want to kind of figure out what's going on with the cars. Um, And last but not least, and I don't know about you, Lana, but I see this quite a bit, credit card debt. Um, There are a lot of people, unfortunately, that are spending way more than they are taking in for income. The credit card debt is high. Um, They are paying extravagant rates, um, you know, on the monthly minimums or whatever. You'll want to know if there's credit card debt and what's going on with those. Um, And the sooner, the better to address what's going on with the credit cards and potentially to actually stop people from using them just to kind of freeze them in time. Um, Because I think that's one fear that people have is, well, you know, we have a joint credit card and my spouse is continuing to use it, you know, to go to France with his ex-girlfriend or the new girlfriend or whatever. Right. So you'll want to kind of keep an ear open for that. The last thing um, in terms of debt, something that I've Come across more recently, honestly, is IRS debt. I think um, during COVID, I think a lot of people got behind on paying their own taxes. I'm seeing a lot of more, t- a lot more tax bills in the last year or two of unpaid IRS debt. And what people don't necessarily realize is that um, if you do not make a payment plan fast enough with the IRS, they will start to raid your accounts. They will raid your assets. I just had a client that happened to you the other day. Um, suddenly there's there was a bank account and then suddenly all the money is gone and the IRS just took it. So um, if you need to, you, you wanna be inquiring about whether or not there's any IRS debt because you will wanna take care of that immediately. Um, and there's a chance that the parties may be able to work out a parenting plan with the IRS. Um, but they can't do that unless they're actually addressing and having communication with them. So,
0: yeah. Um, the other thing to be issue spotting for is safety. Are there any safety concerns in speaking to someone? You know, um, is there any verbal abuse? Is there any physical abuse? Is there a certain level of control over what can or cannot happen? And do The biggest question, if you start to kind of get that red flag feeling, is asking your client, do they feel safe? Do they feel that they are safe? Do they feel that the children are safe? Or do they feel that something, you know, could happen? Um, And it's, you know, in those situations, you really have to tread carefully because you don't want to scare anybody or freak them out. But at the same time, you know, you need to have a candid conversation with your client that some of the things that you have heard have concerned you. And based upon this, you want to make sure they feel safe. And if a time does come where they don't feel safe, then they need to call the police and call you if they end up hiring you or their lawyer and discuss getting a restraining order. I also always tell my clients to, you know, make sure whatever you do, especially if they're telling me like it's a really toxic environment and, you know, maybe there's some subtle like pushing or shoving that you can't really necessarily say is, a. it's not enough to warrant a restraining order. You can't say it's like a one-off, but there are things that you're hearing that are concerning. I always tell them. Whatever you do, do not grab their phone out of their hand. Because if you grab their phone, that is an oxalton battery and you will get in trouble. And so I wouldn't like I before knowing that information, I would never think that. Um, So I always put it out there. So my clients are aware of that. Um, You know, so that that's a big thing. And you have to really make sure you have the right candor in the conversation with your client when you're discussing that or the person who's calling you. Um, You know, we talked about this a little before with the jobs and where people are at in their lives, but also figure out timing. You know, is somebody, is somebody, is it an older couple? Is someone reaching retirement age soon? Um, How old are the kids? Is a child going to be starting kindergarten? And if the parties are separating and planning to move to separate towns are already living in separate towns, are there going to be issues with where the child goes to school? Um, Again, like getting a new job, is that coming up? Is that happening? You know, do we need to go in in, after filing the divorce? Do we need to go in and try to get temporary orders? Um, Because there are life events happening and the client doesn't foresee an ability for the parties to agree. And the last thing is, is there any upcoming court date? So, you know, sometimes people call you after they've already been served, or perhaps they've started the process on their own and realized, gosh, I'm totally overwhelmed. What do I do? Um, so it's important to know if there's any upcoming court dates and also, you um, you know, is there any other attorney in the case? Have they worked with anyone before? That's an important thing to suss out.
1: Um, I get. I have just a couple of things to add. On the upcoming court dates, um, you know, I'm sure we've all had a situation where someone calls you and said, I need someone for tomorrow. Um, I know I can tell you, I don't know about you, Lana. I, I can count on my hand the number of times that I've actually taken a case where there was a hearing the next day. Um, Similarly, I don't think I've ever taken a hearing within seven days of being called. Um, It is obviously up to you as to your comfort level, um, but generally speaking, there's usually a lot more to the story and you want time to prepare. So although I think it's excellent that you're getting called and it's excellent that they've come to you, as the lawyer, it is also your responsibility to make sure that you have sufficient time to prepare to represent your client's interests to the best of your ability. And I would just caution you to doing the quick knee jerk. Yes, I'll be there tomorrow. You know, with check in hand. Um, I Enough. think I've okay. I've absolutely told people. You know, if you have a hearing tomorrow, why don't you tell the judge? You're planning at the in council. You would like a brief continuance for a week or two. And then I'm happy to, you know, formally retain you. Um, I don't know if that's what you say, Alana, but that's what I say. Because I think that you don't want to shortchange your client by also rushing like crazy.
0: No, that's exactly what I, that's what I was going to say is you can always tell that person, you know, I'm happy to talk to you. I'm happy, you know, to get your information, because your case is so soon, I'm not going to be able to come on board and be able to effectively represent you. Um, But what if you go in and you tell the judge or if there's opposing counsel that, listen, I'm in the process of retaining an attorney. Can I have a continuance? You know, that could work for you. And then we can discuss me representing you. And I will also say, you know, I very rarely, like Grace said, take cases if it's going to be happening in the near future just because, you know, you need time to prepare. But also, you know, the court, you shouldn't take the case expecting that you'll get the continuance if it's a week away. Because, for example, I I have taken on cases that, you know, you have maybe like a week, a week and a half, which is enough time to start getting basic information, but not fully able to, you know, go in guns blazing. And I've gone in and asked for a continuance and the court will sometimes say like, listen, you took this case knowing that it was happening in seven days. Counsel, like this isn't appropriate. And that's more to defer clients from like attorney shopping and drawing out the case than it is, you know, to dissuade lawyers from taking on cases. But it's something to know and be aware of. I would
1: just add also, similarly, do not take a case that you're not available for the first hearing. And I get that call a lot. And if someone says, I've got a motion for temporary orders on, you know, on November 10th, would you take the case? If I am already scheduled to be in court on November 10th for another client, I am not taking their case. And I am telling them, I, you should go to someone else because I cannot move that other hearing that's been set for four months or whatever. hmm Um, so all right, so we've talked about kind of issue spotting and what your job is um as the lawyer in terms of listening to their story. And I think, you know, a lot of mentioned, you know, we're either we're talking to them on the phone, we're on a Zoom, or old school, we're in person, right? But either way, I think the one of the benefits of the interview is that you can let them talk and you're kind of listening, asking questions intermittently if you feel like it, but letting them tell their story. Because for a lot of people, as a lot of said, this might be the first time that they've even disclosed to anyone that they're getting a divorce. I've had that many, many times and you know, always have a little bit of tissues ready to go because it's emotional for everybody. Um, but one of the other things that co- kind of comes up is, all right, well, let's just say now there's gonna be a divorce what is what are the two kind of paths that this case could take. So one of the things that I always tell the client or the potential client is about the differences between a 1A divorce, which is the joint petition, and the 1B divorce, which is filing the complaint just to get the clock started so that you know that you'll have a hearing, a pretrial conference um, within six months of that. A lot of people, uh, you know, always say like, oh, I don't want to file or I don't want to upset them or whatever. And I think one of the things that I like to tell the potential client is, I totally understand, but it also kind of behooves you to start this process. If they have counsel, I'm happy to call up the other lawyer and say, you know what, we filed just to get something on the docket, just to get us a court date that we know to hold our feet to the fire. Happy to work with you in between. You know, and I think a lot of clients feel better about that. So if you can dissuade them that this is a huge, you know, step and it's super litigious. And, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be that way at all. And I think if they recognize that it's just um, you know, one thing that you can do to just move and make sure that you do have a date, uh, I, I feel like a lot of clients do like that approach.
0: Yeah, and I especially tell them to, you know. Filing a 1B does not preclude them from settling all the issues. All it does is make sure you have a foot in the door, because if even if everything's hunky dory right now and things are going well and great, it could all explode. And when it explodes, it's going to be really hard for us to get into court. We have to want have a,
1: a docket number. <laughs>
0: We gotta file the complaint. We have to wait to get the summons. We have to get the other party served. And then we have to get in on the temporary orders. And that could be months from then. So it's almost better, you know, if people are on the fence and like, well, I don't know what to do. We said we'd figure it out jointly. You say, but you still can, but this just protects you. And, you know, by no way are we making it an adversarial and we can be very clear about that and send like a fluffy letter. Um There's a lot of ways to go about this, but, you know, it's a big um, important detail is having that docket number so you can get into court. Um, And the other thing that we talk about is the financial statement. Um, You know, we did talk about financial disclosure and learning about, you know, what is their income, what are their jobs, what are their assets. Well, that goes on this Document called the financial statement, and they're depending on their incomes. If it's under seventy five thousand dollars, it's the short form. If it's above that, it's on the long form. And you kind of walk them through what the expectations are for the financial statement, and it's everybody's least favorite document. Um, And you, but you explain to them, you know, you need to have the court needs a financial picture of your case of this point in time to find out exactly what your assets are. And what your income is, and what debt that you have, and what are your expenses? What are you spending money on? All of this is extremely important in figuring out what kind of support order is necessary and what kind of asset division is necessary. Um, And letting them know, like, you're going to hate this. But once it's done, um, you know, we can now have this document to work off of. Um, We are also explaining to them 410 disclosure. So anytime a divorce is filed within 45 days of the um, summons being served, the 410 disclosure is due. So the 410 consists of the last three years of tax returns, bank statements, retirement and investment accounts, any loan applications that have been um, filed or done, and then the last four pay stubs and information about um, health insurance. If Explain to the client this is necessary, and are they able to get these documents? Do they need any help getting these documents? Um, You know, a lot of people have not really, both in doing their financial statement and 410 disclosure. You know, some people may have not thought about their finances for years and they know they have some accounts somewhere, but they're going to have to look into this, which boggles my mind every single time. But, OK, um, so, you know, you talk to them about why it's important that they get it, how they can access them online, um, how they can go to the bank and request it if they need to do that. Um, but you let them know it's important that it gets done. Um. And the other thing is, you know, I also tell them, you know, yes, there's this 45 day deadline, but because this is family law, um, things can be in flux. And if you need additional time, you know, please let me know, be communicating with me because I can reach out to the other side and let them know, you know, I need some, listen, I'm working on this. I will be getting everything, everything over to you, but I need some more time to do it. So it's really important though that the client understands the expectation of the clock and understands that they need to be communicating with you if they're not able to meet that expectation.
1: Yeah, and also another um kind of good good thing that I always tell the client in terms of client expectations, um, is also telling them about rule 411, which is the automatic restraining order on assets, which if you're the plaintiff, once you file that complaint for divorce, it is in effect. If you're the defendant and you've been served, it is now also in effect on you, which basically says that you cannot, um, you know borrow or encumber or dilute any assets um, except to pay for legal fees and reasonable living expenses it's usually a pretty hot topic if somebody you know basically you can't go and sell real estate without the other person um, agreeing and writing after this goes down you cannot change beneficiaries on any of your policies or your health insurance or anything else like that people um, I think a lot of people don't know about those rules and I always always want to make sure that they have it. Sometimes I also bring the full um, 411 uh, language with me and I handed that to them uh, when they leave. But it's important because there are severe penalties with violating 411 and you always want to give the potential client the heads up that obviously you don't want to recommend doing anything. And if they really have a question about it, they should always be talking to you or another lawyer before making a move that might hurt them. Um, And my experience is that judges do not appreciate the violation. So you never want to put them in a position where they've done something wrong and they haven't even known about it. So um, always tell them about the automatic restraining order on assets. Um, The other thing which has been modified over the years, there used to be a, a parenting plan, a parenting course that parents had to take. Um, it was free. They just reinstated the requirement again, starting today. Um, I don't remember what the new standing order is, but essentially the, I think that there is a new expectation that if you can stipulate to all parenting plan issues, you do not have to take the course. If you cannot, then you are not excused and you have to take the course. And I think it's $50 a person and it's online. Um, and you can watch the videos on your own time, but that is gone back into effect um, starting today. So you absolutely want to tell people that have children um, that this might be coming, you know, that this could be applicable to them. Um, and the last piece in terms of um, timing, you know, we talked a little bit about <clears throat> is there a reason? Is there is there some emergency that we need to deal with? Is the safety of a child at risk right now? Um Do the parties, you know, I think the biggest one that comes across my desk is, um, you know, maybe it's getting untenable for the parties to be in the same household. You certainly never want to put your client at risk of having a restraining order put on that person, you know, or having them fight physically at home, that kind of thing. Um, And so you always want to advise that if someone is planning on moving out of the house and there are children, you want some kind of parenting plan in place. You want that to be issued as some kind of a stipulation that is made into a court order. So getting those motions for temporary orders scheduled might be a good idea, especially if you can't agree to what the parenting plan would be. But you never want to advise a client Um, To leave without having a parenting plan. So um, and then I just generally tell them, you know, after the motions for temporary orders, the other things that would happen is you'll get a pretrial conference that happens roughly six months after filing at the pretrial conference, the judge is going to expect everyone to have their discovery complete and that we're going to talk about where we are and where we are apart in the case. And hopefully the judge will weigh in on some of those issues. And we'll have to have a memo and we'll have to have a four-way settlement conference beforehand. Um, and then to say, you know, ultimately, if we cannot settle after pretrial, we might have one more status hearing and then there'll be a trial. It's a long way away, but just to give the client kind of a an overview of what could possibly happen in their case.
0: Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, they're asking, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? And, you know, it's the classic legal answer of it depends. But you give them an idea by using that roadmap. Well, if this happens at this point, this is what we do, Um, you know, and during this time period. Love you. Thank you. Um, if during this time period, for example, like somebody wants, they say, what about mediation? What about conciliation? You know, you let them know, like, this is something you can do throughout the process. Um, and you just kind of give them the lay of the land based upon what their expectations are and the issues that you're hearing, um, them discuss. The other thing, um, to go over with them is the fee structure. We talked about that before. So what is the retainer that you need to do the case and what are the rates? So for myself, for example, I work with two other lawyers. Um, me doing the meeting may mean that I'm gonna be working on the case, but it could also mean someone else in my office could be. So it's important to let them know you know, who they are um, and how much everybody costs so there's no surprises. Um, you know when setting a retainer in a case sometimes depending on the issues i may ask say i need a lower retainer sometimes i may ask for more you know recently i had a client call and it's a one a divorce the reason why they need a lawyer is cuz they had somebody else the parties got along they had somebody else draft it and they went up to the court uh not represented and there were a lot of issues with the agreement and the judge suggested that they both hire lawyers Um, so, you know, maybe that, and the other lawyer is drafting the agreement. So maybe I do a lower retainer because I know there's probably, you know, there isn't essentially an agreement. These parties got along enough to do this. I'm not the one doing the laboring or of the drafting. Um, but I have to consider the fact that, um, you know, there could be red lines and that's going to cost money. I always tend to, Grace, I don't know about you, I tend to have a higher retainer because I think that family law cases at times can get really expensive really quickly, especially if something heats up. And I would rather not catch people by surprise. So if they know that they've already paid that money, they know it's there. Um, and it's always great, even though it hardly ever happens, to be able to give people money back um, for your services. Um, and you know, one thing when you're talking to the people and having the initial consult is listening to what their financial situation is, figuring out if you're the right lawyer for their case, um, can they actually afford your services or are they going to really spend everything that they stand to gain by hiring you? Um, and I oftentimes try to suss that out while talking to them and give them, referrals to other attorneys who perhaps cost less than I do. Mm -hmm. Um, My favorite question though, Grace, and I'm sure you get this, is how much, okay, I hear what you're saying. Thanks for walking me through this. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. You want a retainer of $10,000. Okay. But how much is this going to (laughs) cost? Yeah. And I always say, I, I really don't know. It depends. They like to, you know, say, well, if it's this much, then based on your hourly rate, it's this many hours. So does that many hours make sense to you? And, you know, I am it's so hard to give a cost of services because of the complex issues that come up in these cases and because you never really are quite sure at the initial stage. What's going to happen? I mean, how many times, Grace, have you had a client come to you and they say, oh, this is going to be easy. We agree on everything. There's no problems here. And all of a sudden, Pandora's box. Everything's a problem. (laughs) Every single thing is an issue. You need to get business valuation. You need a forensic accountant. You need house appraisals, everything. Um, You're in court every three months trying to deal with something. Um, You know, you don't know that from the onset. And I very much caution everybody on here to really um, explain why it's so hard to give that estimate and why you're not comfortable doing so. Because I think you only not get yourself in trouble, but, you know, the clients really glue into certain things. Sometimes they have a date in their head for the day in which they're getting divorced. Sometimes it's the number. And so, you know, I really try to discourage that because you just, this is beyond your control. How someone's divorce goes is beyond,
1: beyond your control. Right. Um, so one other thing which you should do before you sit down with someone, um, and, you know, and, and we're, Alana and I are talking about, you know, initial consultations here, right? Now we're assuming that you've already done an internal conflict check. Um, I generally make sure that I have already run my conflict check to make sure that I have not, you know, that my firm has not represented the other side in any capacity. Um, even if they've represented my, uh, you know, even what my client would be, this kind of sometimes comes up, you know, if let's say that my client owns a business and my firm represents the business, um, I don't always take the client on because I figure, you know, maybe there's a subpoena that's going to have to be sent, or maybe there's going to be a bunch of discovery on my client's business. Well, the firm that would be handling any kind of defense of that is my own firm. So you always have to be on the lookout for that kind of thing too. If you're, if your other firm represents some other entity that they're connected to. So always kind of check, but you know, you, you do want to make sure that you're doing the conflict and I cannot tell you it's happened to me maybe three times where, um, even someone in my own office talked to a husband and four days later, the wife called me and we had already done the conflict search and the red flag came up and everything else. But, you know, you think, Oh, what are the chances? You know, well, they happen. (laughs) It's a Boston is a small town and it happens. So it's worth it to do the conflict check. Don't ever forget, because you don't want to get into a situation where all of a sudden you're talking to someone and you realize that you've already talked to their spouse. And then all of a sudden you can't represent them anyway. Um, Quick, couple of quick things. I know we're running out of time, but, you know, sometimes- Oh, yeah. Before you go into
0: it, what I'll just say is because we are just about out of time, you know, while Grace is going through kind of the last couple of points, um, if anybody has any questions and you guys want to put them in the chat, we can start, I can start seeing what those are um, while we kind of finish up so we can uh, answer any questions you guys have before the end.
1: Thanks, Lana. Thank you very much. Yeah. And anyone, feel free to chat. so just a couple of other last comments. And I know Alana said, um, you know, when you're coming in as a potential second second lawyer, right? That this person has made a decision that for whatever reason, they want to change counsel. Um, I always actually ask, who is the current lawyer? Um, why? Where are you in this case? Why is it that the client feels like they're not being serviced by that lawyer? Um, I do that for two reasons. Number one, I'm interested. But number two, if I know the other lawyer and I know that they're a good lawyer or someone that I would be able to work with, right, and this person wants to change, that kind of also gives me a red flag that, um, you know, they're, they're jumping ship for a reason. But it could be that, you know, the lawyer is telling them advice that they don't want to hear. Um, and so I think you always kind of want to keep that in the back of your head of, all right, you know, if this person's leaving, um, are they leaving a lawyer that probably was doing a good job for them and they just didn't like what they were hearing? And are you going to be in the same situation? So always just kind of have that in the back of your head. Also, I always ask because it the apple doesn't fall, fall far from the tree. I ask if they have a balance owed to the prior counsel. Because if they do, that means if they are willing to stiff that lawyer, they will be willing to stiff you too. (laughs) So I always inquire. Um, And then um, again, just anything in terms of if they're looking for the replacement counsel, making sure that there's not some, you know, upcoming court date that's in like a week you know, that they're trying to really quick get you replaced for. You always want to make sure that you've got enough time because the judge, for as much as the judge is going to appreciate new counsel coming in or whatever, you're not guaranteed to be given a bunch of slack if you're coming in and the case has been going on for a year and a half. You you need to be ready. Mm-hmm. Um, you
0: know, and I think, Like I said, really mentioning to the clients during the call about mediation, um, conciliation, and what that's like. Also, maybe consulting with uh, different guardian, having guardian items or Mm -hmm. uh, any financial or forensic people in the case so they know like those may be a part of it. Um, That's really important. But I think, you know, in closing, I have two really two big points to make. You know, these people are coming to you for help. I always feel that it's a privilege that we get to help them. They're going through some of the most emotional turmoil time in their life. Um, And they don't really know what to do and where to turn. And, you know, they need somebody to help get them to the other side. And that's very much what I feel we get to do in our job as divorce attorneys. Um, That being said, you know, you're not there to be their punching bag, to be there for, you know, them to get through all of their emotions and feelings. You know, you are there. To be their legal advisor, and sure, sometimes you know that blurs your therapist, your social worker, your best friend. Um, But if you you really need to trust your gut about people, and if you're in a position that you can be selective about your clients, you know, take that time for yourself to figure out if this is a good match. You know, we we want to be hired. We want we want people to want to work with us, but don't devalue your own value. And don't discount your own value. And remember, you know, all of this can have its own mental toll on us. And so really make sure you take cases and work with people that it's going to be a positive relationship for both of you. There's no reason for you as a lawyer to be arguing with your client because they disagree with you. They're hiring you for your advice. And if they don't want to take your advice, that may not be um, the best um, path. And best person to work with. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, and I think also, you know, in many situations a lot of the clients are going to be going to you a lot and sometimes that's, you know, after hours or on weekends or whatever and you want to be able to um be comfortable talking with these people at all hours and you want to make sure that you um, you know, the the that you're okay talking with this person. So I think that it's okay to be picky about who you choose to be as your client. You want to be able to have a good working relationship with them. And if you get this vibe during, you know, gut reaction, gut check, if you get a vibe during a interview um, that you just don't think that you are going to gel with the client, or you think that even when they're talking to you, that they're taking positions that you wouldn't be comfortable taking in front of a judge, because remember, your reputation is on the line too when you go before a judge. Then I think then you can politely decline even after an interview. And I think that that you're doing yourself a favor if you do, and you're doing a disservice to yourself if you don't.
0: All right. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming today. I don't see any questions in the chat. Um, the BBA has my information as great as well as they do Grace's. So if anybody ever wants to reach out and have any questions that they want to run by us, um, I, Grace, I know I'm speaking for you, but I know that, you know, you'll always make the, we'll both always make the time to help, um, people out and try to help guide them. Um, I want to encourage people to continue signing up for the Divorce Fundamentals series. It's really excellent. It's a great way for new lawyers or, um, lawyers who are in the practice to get a refresher on certain things and hear the viewpoints of other lawyers. And um, they're usually once a month, this month will be two, but I think that they're really wonderful. And I would encourage you guys to continue to sign up and uh, take part. Absolutely. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.